This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre is an economist, the author of more than 20 books, and is one of America's most prominent trans academics. During our conversation, Deirdre talks about growing up in the 1940s and 1950s, knowing from an early age that she wanted to be a woman, her marriage of more than 30 years to the love of her life and fathering two children, and her epiphany in the 1990s at more than 50 years of age that she wanted to transition from a man to a woman. Deirdre also details the reaction of her family to her desire to transition, how she was twice institutionalized progress in trans rights in America, and her disagreements with positions taken by individuals like Kathleen Stock and Helen Joyce, who have publicly voiced concerns about allowing children to go through hormone therapy and insist that the majority of kids who transition later regret their decision. As I note during the conversation, I think most people are trying to form their views on this sensitive issue to best determine what is true and what is decent. A free society should allow adults to do what they want, provided they aren't harming others. I try to understand the concerns of people on both sides of this debate around children, and no matter how one might come down on it, I admire Deirdre's courage in authentically living her life, in being true to herself, and in her commitment to free speech to allow open and important moral conversations to happen. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre, I have been really looking forward to this. Um, just to be able to meet you, to record your story, to learn from you. Thank you so much for giving me the time. It's wonderful to meet you and welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm here, so to speak. I'm in Chicago in my loft apartment downtown, but by the magic of Zoom. Here we are. Here we are. I wanted to start with a quote from your book, Crossing, which I uh, have been rereading over the last couple of days. And this is it. I visited womanhood and stayed. Mm-hmm. It was not for pleasures, though I discovered many I had not imagined, and many pains too. But calculating pleasures and pains was not the point. The point was who I am. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this podcast now for more than a year, and this will be close to the 60th episode. I have yet to have someone on who has gone through a life like yours, who has transitioned and just as a person, I have been extremely interested and curious to to go there and to document a story like yours. And there are a few people that I think can better articulate that in a manner that is eloquent and informed and reflective and civil as you. So I'd love to start maybe by the beginning of you know, getting the beginning of your story from when you were you were young. And I guess I would start by 
you know, making a note of what you say at the very beginning of your book crossing, which is that in the very early stages of your boyhood, you were very much a boy. Sure. Um, you were interested in boyish things. You were interested in trucks and warfare. Well, and then something changed. And I'd love to maybe start by just giving you an opportunity well, to remember that. You know, I, I've kind of, uh, I, I've thought about it. I haven't ever been psychoanalyzed or depth <laughs> psychology or anything about it. But as far as I can remember, I was interested in some boyish things, but not as, not the usual group of boyish things. For example, I, I grew up in Boston. My father was a big, um, big Red Sox fan. And yet I didn't ever have the, uh, what so many of my male friends have, uh, a, a boyhood filled with baseball statistics. Yeah. Uh, um, um, George Will, for example, is you know, a crazy Chicago Cubs fan and knows everything about the Cubs. By the way, I, had a, I have a cousin who was a, for one year, was, was a pitcher for the Chicago Cubs in the 1920s. Uh, so, and I I was never aggressive the way some boys are. Um, I can remember in my boyhood one fight, and that a not very serious one. My be best friend, Joey, who lived down the street, for some reason, I can't remember, we, we got into a tussle, but that, that's all it was. Where there are some boys who, you know, they fight. <laughs> yeah. And, and like John Wayne, they claim to enjoy it. So I didn't. So I, I've, I've, I've looked back and tried to say, well, was there something feminine about me? Maybe there was. But in any case, starting around age 11 or so, as puberty came on, I... Um, I started to cross-dress, as lots of men do, occasionally. And um, thank God I wasn't ever caught. I was born in 1942. So if I had been caught in 1943, dressing in women's clothes, my mothers say, um, they would have, you know, that's, that's really a dangerous time to be queer. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they were giving boys with homosexual tendencies, which I never had, uh, electric shock therapy in the 1950s to shock them straight. Yeah. So, you know, thank God. So I was normally attracted to girls, if, you know, and, and married the love of my life, 1965, um, and was married for 30 years, had two children, but always occasionally out cross-dress. And, um, and I thought of myself, standard category that the psychiatrist worked out, um, I thought of myself as a heterosexual cross-dresser. And you'd be surprised at how many men cross-dress. I mean, it's not everyone, but <laughs> it's quite common. Uh, Amazingly, in my experience, engineers are particularly inclined to be cross-dressers. Don't, don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's some sort of sampling problem I'm facing. <laughs> anyway, it, uh, but then I 
1995, early in 1995, through the beginnings of the internet, I discovered discussion groups of cross-dressers. And I discovered from them that practically everywhere has a cross-dressing club Mm. where guys meet at the local Holiday Inn. I'm not making this up. And uh, and they get dressed and then they go home. (laughs) And after about eight or nine months of that, I got it that I wasn't a heterosexual crossdresser. I wanted to, as as the quotation you read said, go to Venice, go to Paris, and stay. Yeah. So it it was a. I just saw TV biography of bill clinton and clinton was the son of an alcoholic the the, his stepfather clinton yeah um and they say the commentator said as the child of a of a alcoholic you're concealing something you're repressing it it's the only way a child can handle this terror of a, a violent father gets drunk and beats up on his mother. So there was, in that respect, there was this suppressed uh, secret part of me. The only person in the world who knew was my wife. Hmm. So anyway, that's the brief story. So then in August of 1995, I twigged, as the British say. And, to, if, if we if we can, I would love to to back up maybe and, and sure. talk about you know your your earlier life because I know one of the you know interesting pieces of information that I learned in in doing research for this conversation is you know you were a I think you were the high school quarterback of your football team. Yeah. I wasn't the I I was the captain. The, the I didn't captain. have the skills to be a a, a quarterback. I was a lineman. Very in nice. an emergency, I think I could still do a crossbody block. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have to be a hell of an emergency. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, you you were born Donald. I was. You, you 1942. Lived in, in 1942. And you know, I, I know just in my personal life from one of my closest friends when I was growing up, also in the Midwest, and sort of right on the Pennsylvania, Ohio border, mm-hmm. he was gay knew he was gay concealed it from everyone you know this is not that long ago but it 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 really is culturally it's amazing how far we have come in general astonishing perspective of of how we treat and think about gay people but in learning the truth about his own story he knew from a very early age that this is who he was he was pretend he was dating women he was trying to date women uh, but meeting up with men in secret and For someone, for you, when when you are, you know, young and going through puberty, you know, just personally, did you, you know, you you already said this in this conversation that you married the love of your life. I did F- physiologically, you know, just personally, were you attracted always to women, or yeah. what? What was yeah. the self awareness like in your early, you know, puberty? Well, years? you know, a, a twelve or thirteen year old is not very self aware <laughs> unless he or she is unusually perceptive. Yeah, and I was not especially. So no, I, you know, people can do many things at once. They can, they can be operating at 
this level of, or this way in one way and doing it in, in some other way. So I, I, and I, I, in other words, humans can compartmentalize, thank God. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did. I, I, I was, not, there, there are some trans people, male or female, and by the way, they seem to be about equal in numbers. Uh, it's not the, the people assume that it's men, males going XX, XY people going to, to being or performing as X, X people mm. um, is, is what it is. But that's not true. There, there appear to be equal number of females to males as males to females. It's just easier to do it female to male mm. and harder to detect and I have a male voice, alas, and you know I'm big. Uh, uh, so you know, the the other day I was standing in a line in an airport, and I was read um, by 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 the couple in front of me. I could tell that they knew I had once been a man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the um, but I was attracted to girls, women, and always was. Uh, unlike Bill Clinton, I was not a super stud, I have to say. <laughs> but, but, but I, I was very, uh, you know, very, heter- very heterosexual, still am. Although since my change, I haven't had any uh, uh, sexual experiences at all, mm. um, which is fine with me because sex is a hell of a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> As you may have noticed in your own life. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So, so the... I, I was, I, it, it, look, people want people to be simple. Are you gay? Are you this? Are you, are you French? Are you, are you a lawyer? They, they want people to be one thing. Mm. And most people aren't. I mean, I think all people are multiple. Yeah. We're all the children of our parents. We're, all the parents of our children were all mixed things. Yeah. And I think we will get to this in this conversation because I know you write about this in your book as well, that the decision to to change eventually in your early 50s in part was done because you can, because you're a free person who can do what you want. Yeah. Um, you know, during the courtship with the, the woman who had become your wife, mm-hmm. was there a discussion between the two of you no. about your tendencies? Were you intentionally no. concealing information yes. from her? How, how did you yeah, go about that? I was, I was, but I was not, I was not, how can I put it? I didn't feel guilty about concealing it. Hmm. Um, maybe I should have, but I, I didn't um, because I didn't regard it as central to who I was. Yeah. Put it that way. Um, whereas by now I do feel it's central to who I was, but it, it took the me to the age fifty three to kind of get that um, uh, again this ability to suppress and to uh, and to double and and treble track that people have no i i i didn't I didn't think it was that big a deal honestly and in the third month of our marriage I told my wife and we cried about it but we rather quickly we developed what is 
the the practice of the great majority of heterosexual crossdressers, which is that it's no big deal. Yeah. It's uh, something, you know, men, as as women know, men um, have a lot of sexual peculiarities that don't really amount to very much. Foot fetishes and this and that. Now, some of them are, you know, like being attracted to um, children and so on. That's, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's nice, but, but it, that's not harmless. But this was. And, uh, you know, I didn't do it in front of her. I didn't ever do it in front of her. Um, but when she was away, I'd sometimes do it. And neither of us thought of it as a big deal. Yeah. When you say after three months, you talked to her about it. Yeah. What is it? What is it? What did you, it was what did you saying confess? What did you talk I, about? I, am a tra- I sometimes dress in women's clothes and masturbate and so on. And she, 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 she was a nurse, so she had some, a certain amount of sophistication, but she came from a small town in Vermont, so she's not super um, clued in. But, you know, it was 1965 we're talking about, so uh, no one was clued in then. Yeah. The psychiatrists knew nothing about it. They were shockingly ignorant on the basis of no science at all. Yeah. Um, and that kept going for for decades afterwards. Yeah. You've alluded to this that, you know, the the you know, the nineties were a different time, the eighties are a different time, the fifties and sixties were even oh boy. Even harder. And well, to be to be unusual in any way, to be a communist, to be a uh I don't know, to be almost anything, being a woman, mm. not unusual, but still uh, to be gay, to be foreign, to be anything in the 50s was uh, very nasty. Yeah. I have to imagine that the compulsion to want to do that must have been extraordinarily strong. Well, given, given well, the knowledge that, you know, the conformity was so. Yeah. Enforced. Yeah. But it, it was strong, but it, it's that's true of lots of our desires. I mean, my desire to have this very good chocolate-covered ice cream they have across the street is in my neighborhood is really very strong. <laughs> and I just had two of them for lunch. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, we, uh, I, it's, not, it's not unusual to be driven by various kinds of compulsions. Yeah, uh, People do all kinds of good things and bad things with this kind of uh, it's it's you're in its grip mm. a friend um michael chickson mahai a famous psychologist a positive psychologist and academic he he, he spoke he, last he died a couple of years ago he spoke of flow the psychological state of doing something that you're just able to do it's not beyond your competence but you're able to do it and you're absorbed in it entirely and he calls that happiness and things we do that are good or bad for us or good or bad for other people when che guevara 
killed his first man. He sent a letter to his father. Jay was a doctor. Yeah. And described to his father how wonderful he felt. Well, that's flow. Hmm. And that's the feeling that everyone has sometimes. Yeah. And for yourself, when you would participate in this, right? When it was often in secret, you mentioned Holiday Inn already during this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Was it was it that for you? Was it a state of flow? Was it more of just a was it arousing the the It was arousing. It was arousing until very interestingly in the spring of 1995, it stopped being arousing. Um, maybe not the spring, the summer. Once I twigged, as I've, I keep using that English expression, once I realized that I sh- could change and would, it stopped being sexually arousing, mm. which is interesting. I, I don't know quite why, but... Um, and so it... It was about sex, about masturbation, but um, you know you can tell by the outcome, decades after, that it that it was more than that, more than just just physical reset. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the things just for me as a you know, student of your of your story is that that is different from I think a lot of the trans stories that we hear about today is the age at which you decided to to do this um, this you had lived an entire life of a multi-decade oh yeah. marriage well, you had been a father that's a, because you know that's because things as you said before about homosexuality things have radically changed but in places like the united states or britain france about about society's attitudes towards trans people I mean, still even in 1995, 1995, when I started to transition, it was unusual enough to be on the front page of the Des Moines Register. You know, um, professor at the University of Iowa changes gender. There were a number of stories. Um, now it wouldn't raise a ripple. Yeah. Sometimes in course of conversation, I sometimes reveal that I was once Donald and People say, oh, gee, that's interesting. How about those Yankees? They don't care anymore. Um, whereas they very much cared in 1995 and even more so for the real pioneers. I was early on, but the, the real pioneers were the people like Jan Morris, the English uh, journalist and then writer, or actually Welch journalist and writer who transitioned in the 1970s. You've you've noted this already as well that you know you, you were attracted to your wife. You'd always been attracted to women. Mm-hmm. Those decades, as you think back on your your marriage, your fatherhood, you know, at the beginning of the first chapter of the book, there is a picture of of you. I think probably in your forties or fifties, a, uh-huh. a, beard, a bearded sure. Donald. Sure. Um, when you think back on those decades now. Uh-huh. How how do you think about them? You know, was it a was it a happy marriage? You've used the oh, word yes. suppressed many times. What what do you? No no no. On the contrary, no no. I was I I've I, I've always been a basically cheerful person. I'm an optimist. Hmm. Um, from the time I was very young, I stuttered. I still stutter in some circumstances. Um, 
and uh, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I was kind of golden boy. I went to Harvard College. My father was a. Here, here's what I say nowadays. I should get tremendous credit for choosing my parents because I chose very well. My father was a professor at Harvard. My mother was an opera singer. <laughs> so you know, boy, not is bad. Clever. Is she clever to do that? <laughs> and um, so I was. I had on the whole a charmed life and and enjoyed it. I, I'm not depressed or anything. Um, I was slightly depressed after I left to left the University of Chicago. I had tenure there in economics and history, but decided to leave in 1980. Went went to the University of Iowa, but. I've never had clinical depression as I've seen it in my sister and in, and in uh, friends who have had it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just kind of sad a bit, <laughs> but I'm, and, and my marriage was very good. We, we supported each other. Um, I encouraged Joanne to, to go on in her, her, her career as a nurse. And she got her, uh, she, she got her, her BS from Simmons College in Boston, and then went on to get a, a master's and, and PhD, became a distinguished professor of nursing at the University of Iowa. And uh, we, we, it was a good marriage. Now, it, we were both strong personalities, so there's a little argument and tension there, but that's true, all marriages. What do you think you were suppressing during that time, if anything? You know, I know that's a word we've talked about a few times, but there seemed to have been a revelation for you, a personal revelation in your early 50s that you were almost unaware of, it seems. How no, do you make sense of that? I was aware of it. I just resisted it. Hmm. I was aware that if I could have snapped my fingers, I would have preferred to have been born as a woman. Hmm. I knew that from age 11 on. Um. Uh, but snapping fingers wasn't available. Uh, and, and in 1953, changing gender was not available. Yeah. And until, you know, quite late, it was viewed as very strange and unusual. Um, um, as I said, J Jan Morris in the 1970s was, she, her book called Conundrum taught me and this was when I was thinking about all this in the early 90s. I mean, not too early, in the 1995 was when I really started to think about it. Um, her book taught me that you could go on having a serious career and yet change gender, mm. as, as she did. She was the journalist uh, when, when she was uh, James who announced the scaling of Mount Everest from, from the base camp. Hmm. And she was a journalist and author. And she became Jan and continued being a journalist and author. I was willing, when I decided in August, decided is not the word, as though you're buying an automobile. When I realized in August of 1995, that I couldn't wait to change. My attitude was that I was willing to give up my career and go be a secretary in a grain elevator in Spokane as long as I could be a woman. And for someone as uh, 
career oriented as I am, that's an amazing statement. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the people who know me would be, were in fact astonished that I had this attitude. Yeah. I mentioned my friend earlier who I grew up with, who we went to the same church when we were kids. And uh-huh. he later told me that he had an experience pretty much exactly the same as the one you articulated in your book mm-hmm. of for him asking God to change him, to make yeah. him not gay. And there's a scene in your book where you say the same thing. You know, that, That's right. that you were you were praying and asking God to make you right. a woman. Well, I, actually, I my my joke, and I do this when I give gender talks sometimes, I say when I was 11 years old, I'd fall asleep praying that I would be a, the next morning I'd be a girl and I, that I wouldn't stutter. And I got half of this request, which is then I make the joke that I, I was not, I became at age uh, in 1998, I became not a Catholic, but an Episcopalian. So I got only half of my, <laughs> <laughs> my prayer. If I'd gone all the way to the Pope, I, maybe I would have got both. And this is a simple question to ask, but when you know, you lived for 40 years, it sounds uh-huh. like, knowing you wished you you know, could be or would be a woman. What is the lived experience like well, of that? It's not quite that. See, that's the thing. Again, this point about being able to work on two, three levels. I had suppressed that in the sense I said, well, you know, you remember the uh, Monty Python, I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. You remember their song about transgendered? But yeah, maybe you don't. But in, in, in any case, I had said, no, no, I'm a heterosexual crossdresser. I don't want to be a woman. And I didn't understand what being a woman was, but no one understand. you know, in a, in a transition that every one of us has been through from childhood to adulthood, as a child, you don't know what it's like to be an adult, Yeah. yet you know you want to be. I mean, you, you, you say things to yourself like, boy, when I'm an adult, I can have all the toys I want and some immature adults <laughs> go on with this this theory but but so i i um i wasn't tortured i wouldn't say oh god i can't be a woman oh life's not worth worth living blah 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 no i didn't say that at all hmm. i got on with life and and love and uh, i love my children i love my life worked hard i i, I was happy now I'm happier now. Uh, ecstatic would be more like the correct adjective. But uh, and and I learned things about what it is to be a woman. A lot of which are expressed in 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 the, in the book I wrote in 1999, Crossing. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into that. You, you just used the word ecstatic, and. Um... Mm-hmm. I want to tease that out a little bit maybe later in the conversation but for uh-huh. just to follow the chronology of your life story mm-hmm. you know you reach the mid 90s and decide you know you 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 want to do something here again this this word decision mm-hmm. is a problem because then then you can talk about why you did it yeah uh you can say well i i i, I bought a chrysler why did you do that and then you can give various explanations but 
for 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 a lot of the big decisions or small decisions of our life of our lives deciding is not really what happens i like vanilla ice cream i don't much like chocolate ice cream now well why (laughs) why don't you like chocolate ice cream now come on and and the same thing is true of why do you love the person you love Mm. um why do i love the let me count the ways how, no, she said, how do I lovely, let me count the ways. Um, why and deciding the way economists talk about it is um, is kind of a silly way to talk about some of the more, well, as I said, a lot of the changes we engage in in our lives. Yeah. What wording would you find appropriate? For that well, evolution I, I, or for that transition, I, I, I'm not offended by calling it a decision. But you know, I'm just pointing out that um, that costs. Oh, well, actually, one month before I realized that I could and would in July of 1995. I'm not making this up. I'm a, I'm an economist. I'm a professor of economics. <laughs> I drew up a cost benefit analysis of changing gender Mm. because i had gone to in the months before just in those months not not for years but just in those months i'd gone to a bunch of um cross-dressing conventions which are a hoot i'm telling you they're really (laughs) they're very funny but in any case i went to those and uh saw people who were transitioning and so on said, well now let's see let's look on this as a decision to buy an automobile and um uh <laughs> so i drew up parallel lists of costs and benefits and you know it's idiotic stop it deirdre stop it donald um and and then i i it it I, I, I used in talking to journalists about it um, when I made it public in November of 1995 that I was going to do this. I used the word epiphany, mm. the religious word. Not that at the time I was uh, a Christian, I was not, but mm. but I I used that word, and the psychiatrists leapt on it. Because they thought that meant I was crazy, mm. which is kind of irritating. They take religious experiences as evidence of madness. If you say you saw saw Jesus up on a tree, they're they're going to think you're out of your mind. So, but it was more like an epiphany than like a, you know, deciding on what. I don't know, think of some uninteresting decision that one makes. Yeah. And the epiphany, just so I'm clear, the epiphany was, this is something that I, I want to do. This is a yeah, transition. I, I want to do, but I will do. I came, I, it, I, I was on, I, I, I know the place where it happened. It mm-hmm. was by the DeKalb Oasis on Route 88 Interstate in Northern Illinois. As I was coming back from a night of, wild fun at lesbian bars in Chicago dancing Mm. um, 
having a swell time, came back uh, the following morning. And by the DeCalb Oasis, it hit me. Um, and uh, I came back. I told my wife. She cried. And at first, her attitude was sympathetic because she loved me. But then in the following months, it gradually hardened, which, you know, I, I can completely understand that. Yeah. Do you tend to, you know, make, I, I had this reaction when my friend came out of the closet. I had friends who were in favor of it and friends that were not. And yeah. do you think that kind of hardening was cultural at the time or do you yeah. think it was something else? well and and her friends her friends told her you know in, in divorces um as but by the way you don't have to get divorced when you change gender right the state doesn't have an interest in this thank god so in jan morris's case this character i mentioned she stayed married to her wife mm. um uh, the, let's say I forget the question. What was the question? Well, the question was the reaction that you were oh. receiving from people closest to you. Yeah, well, there were very surprising reactions. That's, you know, in the old days, if you were a Protestant and you married a Catholic, that caused great commotion in the families, both families. If you were white, you married a black as um, Thomas, the Supreme Court justice, did. Yeah. That created a big, big, a big um, kerfuffle, and people would stop speaking to you and would congratulate you and all kinds of mixed reactions. I thought that my mother would have a great difficulty with this and that my sister, who is a, prof who is a professor of psychology, and is a progressive that she would have no trouble, and it was the other way around. Mm -hmm. My sister decided I was crazy and started pursuing me with judges and psychiatrists in tow, and my mother took five minutes to say, oh, well, if that's what you want, dear. And not because she didn't care, but because she, she, she my mother loved me in a, in a way that wasn't going to be overridden by um, by convention. She yeah. she was a very unconventional person, my mother. So that's not too surprising. My understanding is that your sister attempted to have you institutionalized. Twice. Well, actually, she tried three times, succeeded twice. Um, but the it, it ma makes the book more interesting because uh, the middle of the book is all about Laura chasing me around. Um, and you you and I could have committed for observation for three days, it usually is mm. said to be. Um, anyone who is is listening to this podcast, you and I don't know who they are. We could say we heard her threatening to commit suicide. And if you can convince a judge of that, that that's true, the judge will send the sheriff to seize this person who neither of us knows 
and put her in the madhouse for three days. And it usually works out for to be longer because the courts are not in session on Saturday and Sunday. So if you do it on Friday, or actually if you do it on Wednesday, it's going to be, um, or Thursday, it's going to be more than three days. Yeah. And she succeeded in doing that twice. And boy, is that terrifying because we all know from the movies about criminal procedure, at least we think we do. And we know that roughly speaking, if you're innocent, you're not going to go to jail. Um, whereas with psychiatric things, uh-uh. the, the psychiatrists have immense and dangerous power over us all. Um, and they can put you away indefinitely. In fact, the main psychiatrist who dealt with me at the University of Chicago Hospital um, wanted me to um, not go to the madhouse forever, but wanted me to wait for a year and blah, blah, blah. And he knew nothing about what he was talking about. It was just out of the caution, which is bred into psychiatrists as doctors and not into surgeons. So it was a terrifying experience. Yeah. You know, so much of your story, and I, I don't know today that we'll have time to talk about your economic viewpoints, but I know you're a classical liberal and so I much am. of the story of your life, I can understand why, um, given the insistence on individual liberty and individual freedom that is based in that general philosophy. Well, I, you know, that's not quite how I came. That wasn't why I did it. Hmm. I mean, some of my friends on the left um, think, oh, well, she, she did it to, because it was cool or, or, or to express opposition to gender binaries or something like that. It was not a theoretical decision. It was not about liberalism. In fact, long afterwards, I became, after my change, I'd always been, as you said, not always, but for much of my professional career, I had been a 19th century liberal without being very serious about it. Yeah. Uh, serious isn't quite the word, but not being scholarly about it. But in the last 10 years now, in the, in the 2010s, I've gotten very serious about it and I've written a, lot, a, a number of books about it. And, um, but, but, but that's after the fact. I, yeah. I see the freedom to uh, be gay or love who you want or be who you want as long as you're not killing someone else. That's fundamental to um, to liberalism. Yeah, it is not automatic in any other political philosophy. I would love to give you an opportunity. You you said this earlier that your sister attempted to have you institutionalized three times and succeeded twice, and you talked about mm -hmm. the the fear of that, the terror of that. What happened? What do you remember about that? Well, I, I remember a great deal. It's all in the book. In the middle period, uh, there are all kinds of crazy things going on. I mean, some of them are funny and most of them are not. Um, but uh, I, I escaped uh, to California, went to stay with friends in California, economic historians like I was my specialty, and they were wonderfully helpful. Um, 
because the laws in California were somewhat less oppressive than the laws in either Iowa or Illinois. Mm. Um, I, I at the time I, I I lived in Iowa, but the second time she attempted it, it was at the Palmer House in Chicago at an academic conference where my work was being praised. And in the middle of this session, an employee of the of the uh, hotel came in and said, sir, I was in male drag, although everyone by that time knew what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, and said, uh, sir, you're needed outside. I thought, my God, my daughter's been in an automobile accident or something terrible. I come out and there's my sister with two large Chicago police officers. And off I went in a paddy wagon, of all things, um, to the University of Chicago Hospital, where I was met by ignorant psychiatrists, a raft of them. So it's not an experience. Well, here's what I say. Every middle class person should be arrested in life to see what it's like. Um, I mean, you do... Uh, you do moderate nonviolent civil disobedience and you expect to go to jail. But imagine being accused of a crime falsely. And that's, that's how it felt. It was terrifying. Yeah. But my, it t- took a number of years, but my sister and I are not close. I, we, we traveled together and um, I helped her. Last year, move into her new house in Tucson and go through a knee operation. So we're close, but I don't trust her as far as I can throw her on psychiatric matters. Yeah, I want to. I want to talk about now. Maybe this is a good transition to talk about you know people like your sister. It it tra- the trans issue just has become front and center in a way that maybe you find surprising you know in the last five years you can't go a day on twitter or a day or a week watching the news without having a trans issue come up yeah and maybe maybe a good way to segue this is is to ask you about you know your sister i know you just mentioned you travel together do you think in general she has you know her ignorance has been has shifted what do you make of her she wasn't mentality she wasn't ignorant the psychiatrists were ignorant, and she was following the psychiatrists. It was really easy to get psychiatrists to say that someone was crazy in 1995 who wanted to change uh, gender. Hmm. It was easy as pie. And she was having her own problems, um, which we needn't go into, but uh, that explain her behavior, I think, um, more than any ignorance. She's a very intelligent, well-educated person and, and a psychologist. <laughs> an academic psychologist, to be sure, but a psychologist. Now, it, it, the, well, what happened is this. The, the, the chronology is that from the 90s you, you, uh, into the 2000s, things get better and better and better for trans people. Uh, all kinds of things change. Uh, anti-cross-dressing laws, which were in the United States about 100 years old, a little bit more, um, uh, were dropped. Hmm. Um, it became easier and easier to transition. 
But in the, as you said, in the last five years, especially in the age of Trump in the United States, conservatives, um, the sort of vicious conservatives, not people like George Will is a friend of mine, yeah. but but the hateful conservatives who call themselves Christians, um, that they have latched onto this as one of the elements of the culture war. You know, hair dyed green, <laughs> anything you want that they are able to use, they use. And very strangely, it's more virulent in Britain than it is here. Mm. In Britain, it comes from the left, not from the right. Uh, the so-called TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, TERFs, such as, um, uh, what's her name, the um, author of the, um, the magic books, what's her name? Mm. Uh, the incredibly popular children's books. Anyway, she's, yeah, Harry Potter, the, she, that author, she's a TERF. Um, and, you know, the, the, as I debated about a month ago, um, Kathleen Stock, who is uh, not exactly a turf, but has is very worried about transgender issues. She's a she's she's a British academic who was driven from the University of Sussex by students who hated her anti-trans views. You see it. It's all very, it's the opposite of what it is in the United States, so far as the politics is concerned. And uh, she and I be, have become friends, and, and but we don't agree. Hmm. And she's, uh, I don't know, she's very frightened by the thought of a person with XY genes being in the ladies' room. And uh, there you are. Yeah. And I want to get into to that because I've had uh, Helen Joyce on the podcast about a year. I don't know who she is. Who's Helen Joyce? She's a a writer for the economist magazine who wrote a book about the trans ideology movement, also British, um, actually Irish by, by birth. Before we get into that though, I would love. She's a turf. Is that right? Trans exclusionary radical feminist. I don't know. If that, if she would be grouped into that category, but she you know she knows Kathleen Stock. I think they're of a similar mentality. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you used the word earlier, ecstatic. Yeah, to that's talk right. about your post transition life, and mm-hmm. I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about what it is like, what it has been like for you now for more than you know twenty twenty five years to be that's living right. as you have. Well, it, it, look, it, it's the commonest human experience of happiness. Mm-hmm. You wanted to be a lawyer all your life. You wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, when you were a child, you wanted to be a lawyer. You saw it on TV. You thought, boy, that'd be great. Then you become one. <laughs> and, you're, and you're thrilled. You wanted to be a, a test pilot. <laughs> and you become one. You wanted to be a ballet dancer. You become one. It's that kind of experience. And I've, I've had, as we all have had, small or large experiences of that character in other realms of my life. I wanted to be a writer. Now I am. I've written 24 books. 
Um, I, I wanted to be a scholar. I am. I wanted to be an economist. I am. Um, I wanted the Nobel Prize in economics. I haven't quite gotten that, but <laughs> pray for me in October. Um, and so, uh, it's 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 the ecstasy of uh, happiness is not about pleasure. It's well, maybe it's pleasure, but I look at myself in the mirror. I've had a lot of facial surgery. I look at myself in the mirror in the morning and smile. Mm. Um, I, when I walk down the street, I, I, I don't get red anymore. There was a period about a year during my early transition when I was red all the time. People would look at me and I could tell that they were saying, oh, look, there's a man in, the dress, in a dress. I, I was living in Holland, so it didn't matter as much as it would have in the United States. But... Um, uh, now I pass. Even with my voice, I pass. Um, yeah. And I'm old. My 80th birthday is coming up and, uh, on September 11th. Um, so I can say, well, I smoked cigarettes and drank a quart of, ooh, quart of whiskey every day, and this is the voice you get. <laughs> uh, so it it's just the satisfaction is perhaps the better word than ecstasy. Yeah. I had a gay friend who lived on the street in our street on in Iowa uh, City. And he said to me once, I thank God every morning that God made me gay. And I understand that. Hmm. Yeah. Is it a self-actualization for you, you said satisfaction might also work. Is it essentially becoming you? Well, you know, who's you? <laughs> um, that's the trouble with that kind of talk, although it's romantic talk. It sounds yeah. very analytic and sophisticated to call it self-actualization, but it's actually romantic, by which I mean I'm an English professor as well, or was. It means the theory of the romantic movement starting in Germany in the late 18th century and spreading, um, that there's some inner essence of people that they're allowed to express and then they're, that's wonderful. And as a, as a liberal, I agree with that. But on the other hand, the earlier um, assumption social assumption, social construction, social uh, idea, was that you are what your social role says you should be. If you're the Duke of Omnium, you're the Duke of Omnium. Mm. And that's who you are. It's not that there's some revelation, romantic, heroic, um, inner core that you're expressing. It's what you're told to do in the world, hmm. and you do it. So, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm, I go along with that because I think human flourishing depends on people being able to do what they want to do, as long as it doesn't interfere with the plans of other people. Not the yeah. plans, it's not a good way to put it, but the 
the doings of other people. Yeah. Interfere isn't quite the word because we interfere with each other all the time. This is a basic problem in uh, liberalism hmm. because, you know, look, I hurt my wife by transitioning. There's no, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I did. I didn't intend to. That wasn't my purpose. It was, and and she could have reacted the way Jan Morris's wife reacted. And you could say, well, she chose not to. As a girl from St. Albans, Vermont, you can take the girl out of St. Albans, but you can't take St. Albans out of the girl. Okay. Um, we bump into each other all the time. Yeah. And that's why to have a free society, we have to agree at a higher level than just did something I say offend you or did my action irritate you? The economists talk about externalities, that this vocabulary has been going for about 100 years. And the trouble is that everything we do is an externality. If I wear an ugly burnt orange dress, it offends everyone who sees me. So what, should we have a government um, office like in Iran or Saudi Arabia um, to prevent me from dressing in a way that won't offend other people? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking days after Salman Rushdie was just attacked. Exactly. Things he said. Um, exactly. Or things he didn't say, because the actual fact is that he didn't take the, the prophet's name in vain. Mm. It's the, the original charge was crazy to begin with. Mm. But even if he had, I agree. In uh, in Pakistan, if you take the take the uh, the prophet in vain, you're executed. Yeah. What did in you Pakistan in Afghanistan? Well, yeah, in Pakistan, you're almost executed. What do you like most about being a woman? Friendship. Um, and I had no idea about this as a guy. Um, the quality of female friendship, it's cultural, obviously. It'll vary from one culture to another, but I don't think too much. Women make deep friends quickly and permanently in a way that men have no idea um and i didn't uh and you know i i i have lots of superficial and some deep female friends now and it's not that we're in love or it's about sex or something it's not it's about um well for example women friendship of women is based on the exchange of secrets this is true of girls too secrets. Whereas with boys and men, it's the sharing of activities. So a couple of men can spend decades watching football on TV together and think of the other guy as their real mate. He's my friend, my deep friend. Yet 
not know how many children he has <laughs> <laughs> and never think that to go to him when they're in trouble. I have, a, I have a, um, had a couple of um, friends who, who taught at Berkeley, and, uh, and the woman said to the man once, how many friends do you have in Berkeley? And he said, oh, I have, he said, he actually said, and he's a dear friend of mine, was, dear, he died last, but he's a dear friend of mine, and they're both dear friends of mine. He said, oh, I have hundreds of friends. I've lived in Berkeley for 30 years. And she said, you mean you have hundreds of people who will not shoot you on sight? I guess that's what you <laughs> mean by a friend. He said, well, yeah. And she said, well, do you have anyone who you can call in the middle of the night and say, I need you? And he thought for a moment and said, no, I don't have anyone like that. So it's, it was the quality of female friendship which just astounded me. And it's a great, uh, it's a great, great pleasure, pleasure in the kind of superficial sense, but also a deep, I think, think the word satisfaction is best. Hmm. Has it been all ecstasy for you, euphoria for you, or have there ever been moments of second guessing or doubt? No, no. And, uh, about every other decision in my life, especially the one to leave the University of Chicago with tenure, um, I, I have doubts. Not too many. I, I, I don't doubt much that I married Joanne or that I became an economist or decided to venture seriously into the humanities in the 1980s. All these decisions, changes of path in life. I don't have regrets about, and I certainly, <laughs> you know, about my gender change, absolutely not. Straight people assume that you would. And that's why that's one of Kathleen's problems about young people, children in particular, deciding to change gender. She says, oh, how can they decide? Well, that's, she's wrong about that. Um, but in any case, um, uh, the, you, um, it's, uh, let's see, sort of losing the track of my argument here with all its curly cues. Um, the, it, 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 it's a, it's a great pleasure it's it's not because of the pleasures that you do it. Um, it's satisfying. Uh, I forget what the issue is. What's the issue again? Well, you talked about the clarity that you had about the decision. Oh, yeah, yeah. About but not having. Look, all of us, you, me, everyone who hears this, has four in the morning doubts, right? My four in the morning doubt is about leaving the University of Chicago. That's essentially the only decision in my life that I have serious doubts about. Mm. You know, I've, I, I can make the argument on both sides, staying or going. But anyway, I went. I have never once had a moment of doubt, four in the morning or any other time, 
about changing gender. And as I said, for straight people, this seems, hey, what? Yeah. Of course you'd have doubts because they wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Would you change gender? I take it not. Uh, um, and you're horrified by the very thought that in in Iran, if you declare your, or if you're found out to be homosexual, they force you to change gender. Because that's the only theory they have. Only women love men. So in order to be a homosexual instead of being beheaded, you have to become a woman, which is a locker room theory of the most stupid sort. Yeah. Yeah. It confuses whom you love with who you are. Yeah. I lo love my dogs. I've had lots of dogs in my life, and I've loved them all. That doesn't mean I want to become a dog. Yeah. You mentioned Kathleen Stock earlier, and I mentioned Helen Joyce. And I think before we dive in here, I think just personally, as someone who's watching this from the outside, one of the things that I appreciate about you, know, you and your affiliation with the University of Austin and the way that you seem to conduct yourself as a public intellectual, as a someone who's putting their ideas out into the public realm is your insistence on freedom of speech being paramount. And I think we yeah. are all attempting to, or most of us, I think, are attempting to have a good faith um, understanding of what the rational and ethical perspective is on you know, trans issues that are numerous. And I know that yeah. one of the issues that um, you already mentioned this, that you and Kathleen are, are friends, but disagree. And that is a lost art in my, um, from my perspective of people that are, you know, kind of intellectually in the arena. Uh, and I look, I have many socialist friends. Yeah. Most of my academic friends, deep friends whom, whom I love are socialists one sort or another. I was a socialist once, so I kind of understand what they're, where they're coming from. But, you know, I, I don't hate them because they don't agree with my politics. Yeah. I know one of the key points that Helen has made, I think Kathleen probably made in your public debate that, uh -huh. that you, uh, you were mentioning earlier, is that, you know, her concern was about kids having access to permanently irrevocable, irreversible changes that they could make to their their bodies in That's a way that might sterilize silly. them it's a um, completely silly argument here's why here here are an, i i can give you about 10 responses to it here's one it's not irreversible how do i know that gee hmm here's someone who changed gender at 53 mm -hmm. so it's not irreversible so stop nonsense yeah, some parts of it are irreversible. You're sterilized. Well, lots of people are sterile for one reason or another. And so far as decisions are concerned, decisions are made about children and by children all the time that are really irreversible. If you as I, I know people, I have high, high relatives are this way who when they were young, when they were adolescents, refused to be 
um, academically successful. They didn't work hard in high school, even though they had extremely high IQs. Now, I, I'm not going to name these people, but I, they know who they are. Hmm. They decided not to study. And they, they decided it. It's not something that, you know, it was inevitable. Because then they have sisters and brothers who went along with the routine of doing well in high school and then doing well in college and going to college. That's completely irreversible. And I can, I can show you the results. Um, uh, <laughs> becoming an alcoholic, <laughs> and I've known plenty of those in my family on my mother's side. There are lots of alcoholics. Um, uh, experimenting with drugs, um, driving cars fast, um, decisions to bring your children along when you're in the army and you're moving a lot. That's a kind of childhood that's sometimes good for people and often bad for people because every three years they move somewhere else, completely irreversible. It has psychological effects. So come on, what, what is this? What is picking out this one and saying, oh, we've got to have laws against that. So I, I just re re regard that argument with contempt, as you can see. Now, when I'm arguing with, with Kathleen, I try to be polite, but it's a silly damn argument. And, and to say that these kids don't know what they're doing. Now, I wasn't like this, as you pointed out earlier. I, I came to this, this uh, desire, uh, which I then suppressed at age 11. A lot of kids, some girl from age two, <laughs> will be saying to her parents, I'm a boy. I'm not going to wear those damn dresses. Don't give me any cars. I want, I mean, any uh, dolls. I want trucks. Hmm. I want to play with the boys. How soon am I going to grow a penis? I'm a, I'm a boy. I'm a boy. I'm a boy. And this is rather common. It's much more common than people thought it was. Well, what do you do with such a person? It's cruel not to allow him to be him. It's child abuse. Whereas in the state of Texas, it's now been determined by law that it's child abuse to help him. So the argument is it is based on fabulous numbers that mean that are completely phony. That these people, okay, Kathleen's an honest scholar, and and she would be uh, um, she she wouldn't agree with what I'm about to say. But it's based on a on a fairy tale about how many people regret it. Mm. I've right. never met a transgendered person, and I know a lot of them, who has regretted it. Mm. Never once. And I know a hundred of them. So, well, I don't know. Maybe there's some sampling bias that I don't realize. Whereas yeah. Kathleen and this other character you mentioned, they claim, oh, no, it's very common. People regret it all the time. What a lot of nonsense. We're all trying to figure out the truth here, right? And that 
I didn't know any of this information before talking to Helen. Well, well, it's not information. It's it's fairy tales, dear. Much of it is. And and you shouldn't just accept anything you read in the newspapers or everything you read in the newspapers or see online. She's She's got a lot of things wrong, believe me. And if she and I sat down together we, and you were listening, you'd hear some of the things that I think are wrong. But the arousal of hatred against transgendered people is the cost of this. It's, um, uh, now look, I don't go along with the students at the University of Sussex said, oh, you're arousing hatred against transgendered people. I want you fired by the university. I absolutely am against that. But think of the analogies. White people said, black people are terrifying and criminal. I don't want them in my neighborhood. Men said it's appalling to suggest that women should have the vote. That would be scary and terrifying and awful. Um, Jews were treated as vermin in Nazi Germany, as terrifying, a secret conspiracy against good people. And, and on and on and on. The, every time this homosexuals, you, 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 you know this, you, I think you're old enough to remember straight panic about homosexuals. So if some gay guy approached you personally, um, you were authorized in the 1950s and 60s to kill him. No court in the land would convict you out of sheer irrational fear. Now, as a, as a boy who hitchhiked a lot in the days when you could, I was approached by homosexual men, not all the time, but frequently. And I said, no, that's all. I wasn't raped. I wasn't... <sighs> Uh, Kathleen has this vision of men sneaking around in, 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 in ladies' rooms. I mean, Jesus, to perform rape. A rapist is going to rape and should be stopped regardless of where he is. The idea that he would get dressed up in women's clothes in order to rape people is just ludicrous. Hmm. So there's a tremendous number of straight fear irrational, backed, the turf say, by data, which they make up. Hmm. The claim, I mean, the, the just to be candid, the claim that I think I found most persuasive, and, and uh -huh. you very well may be correct about this, I'm, I'm open to changing my mind, was the claim that the majority of the children who were deciding to have these procedures ended up regretting it oh, later that's in their life. That's complete nonsense. And if if they are wrong about that, how are, they, wrong how, about? how are they so wrong? How are they? How are they? Because they're so because yet because by analogy with fear of blacks or Jews or women um, or foreigners or whatever, uh, they they've been aroused and they look. Uh, 
people believed um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, fairy tales about the uh, what, what, what did they call it? The mob. It wasn't the mob. Some other word they used. The caravan mm. of people from Central America approaching our southern border. I have a cousin who who believed all that. Who thought that uh, they they were mainly carrying drugs and were violent people. <laughs> it's just people believe a lot of stuff that ain't so. That uh, uh, Josh Billings. A contemporary of Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know that ain't so. Yeah. Yeah. And is it your view that, you know, if they are incorrect about this, that it has been wholly fabricated? And no, it's not fabricated in the sense that they said, now let's see, let's, let's make up some fake facts. No, they believe it. They 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 think it's true. They 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 believe what the columnist in in the London Times says. They they, they believe this stuff. It's not insincere. And I wouldn't accuse Kathleen of being insincere. Yeah. And they're and they're seriously worried. And that's what that's why I draw the analogy with these other irrational fears. The fear by southern men that black men were after their women, which, as you know, was a deep anxiety that justified lynching. Yeah. And, and understand, the TERFs and Kathleen are focused on the children, and I, I'm all for, all for making sure that the children are helped as much as we can, although understand most of the decisions we make about children are never second-guessed by the rest of the society. Yeah. Most of the way you were raised had nothing to do with child... It, was not, it wasn't the state bureaucracies who, 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 set, who told your parents to do that. Whereas what Kathleen and her friends want to do is bring in the state to intervene in child raising in this particular respect. Hmm. No other respect. You don't read to your child when they're small. They won't become readers later in life. It's, there's probably some scientific proof of that. I just asserted, but I think it's true. Yeah. You don't read you know, um, good night moon to your three-year-old, you're not going to end up with a reader at age 12. Mm. Now, that is an irreversible damage to the child. So let's propose an office of child reading with secret police who break into your house at the time when your children should be to sleep according to the, should be going to sleep according to the state and make sure you're reading to them. Yeah. Right? Not to harp on this too much, but just to get to the genesis of uh-huh. let's say all of these you know public intellectuals like like Helen left like Kathleen are wrong. And I don't know if this is the case but perhaps it is that they're all parroting an article that you just mentioned may have been in the in the times. Uh-huh. Is, is there a 
London clear Times. of the London Times. Is there a clear, you know, uh, a clear genesis for a study that they are now all parroting? Why should it be this way, one? dear? Why should I have to prove that this particular intervention in child raising, where some girl is some ex ex child has been saying since she was two years old that she's a boy, and her parents and their kindliness allow her to go to school as one, and and the school is is tolerant about this. Why should I have to defend that piece of child raising, whereas all the other so, so supposedly it's not even irreversible, but all the other supposed uh, definitely irreversible things that parents do to children for good or evil are not a state responsibility. Mm-hmm. Why should the state be involved? Why should the state of Texas have a law as it does now yeah. against helping children choose the gender they want? I mean, I just don't see... It's it's weird, in the sense. Look here. Here's here's an analogy. The supposedly Christian uh, opponents of homosexuality choose two verses in the Hebrew Bible and one in the New Testament, and hang all their analysis and hatred of homosexuality on those things. Now, ask yourself, there are, what is it, 615 commandments and prohibitions in the Hebrew Bible. Is it 615? Something like that. Um, (laughs) Why aren't these people Orthodox Jews? Why don't they separate meat and milk? Why don't they have ritual baths after their periods? Mm -hmm. Why don't they go to the shul? Right? If you understand the analogy, they're picking out one thing which they don't like. Well, the turfs are doing exactly the same thing. They're picking out one item among the various things, and we've all been children. We all know about this. The various, thing, the various good things and bad things. Uh, my great virtue was that I chose the correct parents, but um, it, they choose this one thing, and then they want to bring in the state. Yeah. I know we're getting somewhat short on time here, so I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about maybe one or two final sure. subjects. But you know, from your perspective, what is the state? What is the country? What is just the correct philosophy in general to to have about these subjects? Obviously, this is this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people, and it gets people extremely emotional. It's part of the reason why I enjoy talking to people like, like uh-huh. you one-on-one in depth because i feel like that is just personally my preferred way of learning and you mean the trans issue 
the trans issue. Yeah. What, yeah. what is the, what's the right path forward here in your the in right your path forward is to leave people alone. <laughs> the right path forward is no slavery. The right path forward is no masters. The that's the core of liberalism. Yeah. As devised rather suddenly in Northwestern Europe in the 18th century, this theory that Thomas Jefferson famously articulated, this man who owned slaves, some of whom were his children, um, all men are created equal and are endowed by their blah, blah, blah. That theory, uh, Adam Smith is my big hero on this, but John Stuart Mill and Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, Voltaire and all these people said slavery is bad. And the great first triumph of liberalism in politics was the abolition of slavery, yeah. actual slavery. And then slavery by analogy, not even very far, not even a remote analogy, the slavery of wives to husbands until the Married Women's Property Act in Britain in 1874, you as a wife were absorbed into your husband. All your property, including your children, went to your husband on marriage. You could, have, you could own thousands of acres of uh, farmland, and he would, the instant you said, I do, he would own it. He would own it. He could sell it and do anything he wanted with it. Um, that's slavery. Uh, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, slavery. Um, until the 19th century, it was conventional to beat everyone. Sailors were beaten. Horses were beaten. Children were beaten. Wives were beaten. People were beaten all the time. And then in the 19th century, under liberal laws, gradually, we stopped beating each other in for to punish, to subordinate people. Yeah. That's the core of this issue. Leave people alone. Don't suppose that the government, you, I'm sure that you don't think, and I certainly don't, that the state of Texas knows better than the average parent does what to do for children. Mm. I mean, it's almost crazy to suppose that those people in Austin know what they're doing. They don't on anything else. I don't know why they would suddenly get wise on this gender issue. So yeah. it's, it's liberalism. It's Another way to express it is is adultism. I, that's a word that I'm I'm peddling these days. That free adults, and this includes parents, should be allowed to do what is harm they can harmlessly do. Now look, sexually abusing children, beating them, right, as was perfectly acceptable, really until the 20th century in the West. Um, uh, now it's illegal to spank your child is now in, in lots of states of the United States is illegal. It's against the law. Whereas the idea of spare the rod and spoil the child 
was conventional thinking right up to the time I was raised, although my parents didn't do it. Um, so those are my views. Yeah. I think regardless, I, I just want to say how much I appreciate the, you know, your openness of sharing your story. You, you write about this in your book that, uh-huh. you know, I think you felt like in your fifties that this was your opportunity. And I think you had a you know, kind of a religious view of this to be an example and to share. Well, the, I, I decided to, I, when I, when I, when I sent around an email um, in the early days of email to all my colleagues telling them what I was going to do, I sent about a hundred of them uh, to my colleagues at the University of Iowa and in my professional life. Um, I kind of naively thought that that would be the end of it. But then a reporter from the Des Moines newspaper called me up and said, well, I have this document of yours. And I decided on the spot that as a full professor of economics and history with a secure tenure, if I didn't speak up, you know, that would be shameful. I mean, I I wasn't some assistant professor on a yearly contract or something. Look, when I was young, I was against the Vietnam War, but I didn't do anything about it. I was against the laws against homosexuality, but I didn't do anything about it. I was in favor of the women's movement, though I was an excellent husband and encouraged my wife. I didn't sacrifice anything to to the women's movement. When the gay movement came up, I had correct ideas in my view, but I didn't do anything about it. Then God tapped me on the shoulder (laughs) in 1995 and said, okay, dear, Here's your last chance to put your, put your, uh, hang your life upon a truth, as a, as a Latin poet expressed it. And I said, okay, yeah, I see what you mean. I'd better hang my life upon a truth. So I, I haven't become a, a professional gender changer, so to speak. Uh, but and you know, I'm mainly a scholar. Been an economist and writer, and that's what I do. Um, but I, I felt I, ha- I had to stand up to people like uh, what was his name? I always call him George Bailey, but that's not what he was. George, oh, M- Michael Bailey, hmm. a professor of psychology at uh, Northwestern University, who wrote a terrible book called "The Man Who Would Be Queen." which merged homosexuality and gender changing in this locker room theory. And I declared against him. Um, And when journalists call, the only bad story I've ever gotten was a little squib in Harper's Magazine back in 1995, where some idiot journalist made fun of or 1996, made fun of the fact that I had come to the American Economic Association Convention as Deirdre. All the rest of the time, I tell my story. I've, I've been on the cover of the Chronicle of Higher Education as Deirdre. Um, all the other stories have been 
you know, whether they're trans, well, they're all, you know, they're, they're all human beings and they all understand human plans and desires. And I've had excellent press, I have to say, but I didn't expect that. I expected to be, uh, as I said, um, I expected to lo- lose my job. Yeah. But I had to. That or be nothing. Say, oh, no, it's a private matter. Oh, I'm I'm afraid to talk about it. Oh, I can't do that. Yeah, well. It seems to me that you were uniquely positioned to put some skin in the game. And to be yeah, that's to right. I, I, I should have. On this, I hadn't put skin in the game about these other things that I claimed. I was in favor of the civil rights movement. You know, I was grew up in a, uh, a democratic household. Um, but I didn't do anything about it. I have friends who went down uh, to South Carolina in the uh, summer of, of 63 to register voters. Well, <laughs> that was dangerous. That takes some courage. It really took some courage, and I didn't do it. Well, I, re- I really respect the courage you have demonstrated, and I just want to personally thank you for all of the time. I really hope we get to meet in person at some point. Um, Good. I would love to continue the conversation, but Certainly. thank you for doing this. Um, it was a real pleasure to meet you and to be able to hash this out and to, to talk in such detail. detail. So okay, thank dear. You. Thank you so much. Okay. I, 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 I've enjoyed it too. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 